0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today on the program, we'll hear a conversation I had some time ago with Amanda Barat. She's the author of My Dearest, Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's lost love. Something completely different. So I hope you'll stick around for that. It's worth uh, worth hearing. Taking a look at the day's headlines, a fiery U.S. Representative Jim Jordan from Ohio brought a House Judiciary Committee hearing to a halt on Wednesday when he launched a tirade against Democrats who were grilling the CEOs of some of the world's biggest tech companies. Well, the fireworks started when Representative Mary Gay Scanlon, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, interrupted Jordan's questioning of Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai over Alphabet Unit, Google's alleged search engine, engine rather uh, bias against conservatives and whether Pachai would pledge that Google will not interfere in the upcoming election to benefit Joe Biden. Now, Scanlon dismissed Jordan's concerns as fringe conspiracy theories. But Jordan responded, Mr. Chairman, we have the email referring to a message written by a Google staffer that suggested the tech giant aided Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. And other related developments, Tucker Carlson challenged Jim Jordan in an interview after the big tech hearing, saying, Google is your second biggest campaign contributor. Martha McAllen presses um, uh, Warner over a claim uh, that the tech companies should censor knowingly false information, in quotes. Also from Tucker Carlson, he used his monologue to take a closer look at Kamala Harris and Karen Bass, two of the leading contenders, to be Joe Biden's running mate. Joe Biden cannot govern the country, he said. He isn't capable of it. Carlson cited reports the former vice president may serve only one term if elected. So Biden's running mate will be the most consequential vice presidential pick in American history. Kamala Harris, he went on to say, has no answers. Fixing the problem is not uh, the point of the exercise. Winning is the point. Unlike Kamala Harris, Karen Bass is not a fraud, he said. Karen Bass means it. She's sincere. She's an unapologetic left-wing bomb thrower who spent decades working to help Fidel Castro in his Cold War against the United States, end quote. Well, Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf told Bill Himmer reports on Wednesday that despite promises by governors, uh, Oregon Governor Kate Brown to the contrary, federal agents will not leave Portland, Oregon, until a federal courthouse that has been repeatedly attacked by rioters is safe and secure, we will continue to keep law enforcement officers in the area to make sure that that courthouse is secure. At the end of the day, Wolf told Hemmer. Wolf said he and the Democrat governor had agreed on a plan to end the violent activity in Portland directed by at federal properties and law enforcement officers that called for the robust presence of Oregon State Police in downtown Portland. Over time, Wolf said, if the Oregon State Police and the plan that has been put in place is successful and we can uh, responsibly draw down law enforcement assets there, then we will. But only then. In other news, German police have uncovered a hidden cellar under the Madeleine McCann suspect's former home. And Michigan Inn um, uh, removes a Norwegian flag, as residents falsely believe it's a Confederate flag. I suppose details actually matter. Laura Ingram hammered Democrats over the deafening silence after a black Trump supporter was murdered. And Seattle residents slammed the defund the police campaign as a radical experiment during a city budget meeting uh, yesterday. The U.S. uh, growth reports show that a record-breaking economic plunge is underway. And a study has found small businesses are using personal funds to stay afloat during the coronavirus crisis. Kodak CEO, well, is in the picture of wealth on a stock rally and a government deal. Well, the NBA uh, camp in China is apparently abusing players from the story. American coaches at three NBA training academies in China told league officials their Chinese partners were physically abusing young players and failing to provide schooling, even though Commissioner Adam Silver had said that education would be central to the program, according to multiple sources with direct knowledge of the complaints. The story also notes the academies take place in the same uh, police state in uh, western China, where more than a million Uyghur Muslims are now held in barbed wire camps. The New York Times, Soap and Deb, this is a massive black eye for the NBA. The stories told in here are very condemning and a shout out to ESPN for some incredible reporting. Amy Swear also weighs in in Twitter saying, but try putting a social justice statement about the Uyghurs on your jersey. I dare you. A poll says 70% of Americans won't take the vaccine right away, even when it's available, and that's even among the high-risk Americans. Just 27% said that they'd um, they'd get it right away. Well, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood are among those calling for the NC2A to boycott Idaho because the state doesn't allow boys to compete as girls. And a group of female athletes have responded with a letter urging them to ignore those efforts. Alliance Defending Freedom. Their website has more on that. While well, the GOP pandemic uh, spending includes cash for school choice. Most states have private school choice programs like tax credit scholarships or education savings account. The GOP proposed uh, credit scholarship uh, would require states that don't have them to create programs at least temporarily to sur- or surrender their share of the uh, funding to other states. Union-controlled states would hurt their constituents by refusing to set up scholarship programs. Bill Gates agrees with Trump's that schools... Trump, rather, that schools should reopen, explaining the benefits in uh, almost every location, particularly if you can protect the teachers as well. The benefits outweigh the costs. David Henderson says that once the pandemic ends, many parents, perhaps millions, will have a new appreciation of how mediocre a job the public schools were doing. They'll continue homeschooling, switch to a private school or push hard to end restrictions on the growth of charter schools. An NFL agreement says no players can attend indoor church unless it's below 25 percent capacity. And The Washington Post concedes, saying we'll capitalize white, too. That's after the AP and others started capitalizing black but not white when referring to race. California is withholding money from cities that allow businesses to open, refusing to give them federal funds. And California lowered the bar standards so more minorities can become lawyers. According to the story, this month, the California Supreme Court, which oversees the state bar, agreed to lower the passing score for the exam. A victory for law school deans who have long hoped the uh, change would raise the number of black and Latino people practicing law. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, according to NPR, the coronavirus pandemic triggered the sharpest economic contraction in modern American history. The Commerce Department reported on Thursday gross domestic product, the broadest measure of economic activity, shrank at an annual rate of 32.9 percent in the second quarter. GDP swings uh, are typically reported at an annual rate of, uh, as they uh, were to continue for a full year, which can be misleading in a volatile period like this. The overall economy in the second quarter was 9.5% smaller than during the same period a year ago. Now, furthermore, after a sharp drop in March and April, economic activity began to rebound in May and June, although that recovery remains halting and could be jeopardized by a new surge of infections. And that's exactly what some are hoping for. And to take political advantage of. Well, the Trump administration is pushing on a claim by Oregon's governor that federal officers are withdrawing from Portland riot zones starting today and instead said the forces will not back down until the state police get control of the nightly firebombing of the federal courthouse they are protecting. Uh, again, is reported by the Washington Examiner, Well, acting Homeland Security uh, Secretary Chad Wolf, as I quoted earlier, said that he and Governor Kate Brown have agreed to a deal that will put state police and local uh, police both outside and inside the federal zone. And if those police can end the nightly violence, then federal agents will begin to withdraw. Google's CEO dodged questions on blacklisting of conservative websites and the Commerce Department moves forward curtailing online giants liability carve outs. Uh, And not a moment too soon. Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is not optimistic about the stimulus deal as lawmakers debate boosting unemployment. And 11,900 U.S. troops are leaving Germany, 6,400 of whom will be returning home. Operation Legend has expanded to Cleveland, Detroit and Milwaukee and beyond Russia. FBI director Ray he warns of China's election interference not just Russia's. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue with a look at the day's headlines so stay with us.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Amanda Barrett, My Dearest Dietrich. It's a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lost Love. We don't often cover novels, but this was an exceptional uh, book, so we're going to talk with her about that later in the second hour of today's program. Former GOP presidential candidate Herman Cain has died after his battle with coronavirus. There's some question as to whether or not that was a contributing factor or the main factor, but he had been hospitalized since the 1st of July. The FDA has opened the door to rapid at-home testing, according to USA Today, and the Fed is holding rates steady, saying economic growth is well below pre-pandemic levels. Seattle residents slammed the defund the police effort there as a radical experiment during a city budget meeting. And double standards. Activist teachers say it's not safe to go back to work while many attend mass protests. Well, on this day in history, 1619, the first representative assembly in America convenes in Jamestown in the Virginia Colony. 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs a bill creating a woman's auxiliary agency in the Navy known as the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service or WAVES. 1956, David uh, Dwight, rather, D. Eisenhower signs a measure making in God we trust the national motto replacing E Pluribus Unum, one of many. 1965, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signs a measure creating Medicare, which began operating the following year. And finally, on this day in history, 2009, you might remember the Beer Summit. Harvard scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Sergeant James Crowley, the Cambridge, Massachusetts police officer who'd arrested him for disorderly conduct at his home, Have beers with President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden at the White House to discuss the dispute that unleashed a furor over racial profiling in the U.S. While Republicans and Democrats hammered big tech CEOs during a House hearing on Wednesday, although for different reasons, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, Tim Cook of Apple, uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Sundar Pichai of Google testified via the Internet on free speech concerns before the House Judiciary Committee's subcommittee on antitrust commercial and administrative law. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, these corporations already stood out as titans in our economy. In the wake of COVID-19, they're likely to emerge stronger and more powerful than ever before. That was a quote from the subcommittee chairman, David Sicilian, a Democrat from Rhode Island. Well, some of the key highlights of the hearing, Representative Jim Jordan opened the uh, hearing with comments by saying, I'll cut to the chase. Big tech is out to get conservatives. He noted that in 2020, Google removed the homepage of Breitbart and the Daily Caller and threatened to um, demonize the Federalist. Amazon banned a conservative commentator's book on coronavirus, Jordan said. It's Amazon Smile uh, charity won't allow customers to give to conservative groups such as Family Research Council and the Alliance Defending Freedom, but allows donations to Planned Parenthood. Google and YouTube announced a policy censoring the content that conflicts with recommendations of the World Health Organization, Jordan said. Think about that, the World Health Organization, the organization that lied to us, that Uh, Shilled for China. If you contradict something they say, they can lie for China. They can shill for China. You say something against them, you get censored. Again, this is part of the hearing that took place yesterday. The Ohio Republicans said such moves by big tech companies matter before the November elections. The power these companies have to impact what could happen in an election, what American citizens get to see prior to their voting, is pretty darn important. We all think the free market is great. We all think competition is great. We love the fact that these are American companies. What's not great is censoring people, censoring conservatives, and trying to impact elections. If it doesn't end, there has to be a consequence. Jordan asked Pachai, CEO of Alphabet Inc. and subsidiary Google LLC, whether Google would commit to trying not to tilt the election to Democrats. Pachai seemed slow to respond, but he did say, Congressman, we approach our work. We support both both campaigns today. We think political ads are an important part of free speech in democratic societies, and we engage with campaigns according to law, and we approach our work in a nonpartisan way. Jordan says, it was yes or no question. Pachai responded, We support work that campaigns do. Jordan appeared to become exasperated. I understand that, he went on to say. Can you today assure Americans that you won't tailor your features to help, specifically help, any candidate over another? Finally, Pachai said, We won't do any work to politically tilt anything one way or the other. It's against our core values, end quote. After Jordan's exchange with the Google executive, Representative Mary Gay Scanlon said, thank you, gentlemen, I'd like to redirect your attention to antitrust law rather than fringe conspiracy theories. Jordan jumped to defend himself, but Sicilian, uh, using his power as chairman, said, Mr. Jordan, you do not have the time. Please be respectful to your colleagues. When someone comes uh, after my motives for asking a question, Jordan said, I get a chance to respond. The chairman, however, did not allow that. Then Representative um, uh, Jayapal Jayapal from Washington noted that last year she asked Amazon's associate general counsel whether the company used any specific seller data in creating its own product. The counsel told her no. Paul said. Uh, however, on Wednesday, Bezos gave a different response than the company's lawyer to the same question. In July of 2019, she said, Your employer, uh, your employee Nate Sutton, told me under oath in this committee that Amazon does not does not rather quite use any specific seller data when creating its own private brand product. Uh, so let me ask you, Mr. Bezos, does Amazon access and use third party seller data when making business decisions? And just a yes or no will suffice, sir. Bezos didn't offer such clarity. I can't answer that question, yes or no, the Amazon CEO said. What I can tell you is that we have a policy against using seller-specific data to aid our private label business, but I can't guarantee you that this uh, policy has never been violated, end quote. Jayapal noted a Wall Street Journal story that said the company violated the policy. Mr. Bezos, she said, you're probably aware that in April of 2020, report the Wall Street Journal revealed that your company does access data on third-party sellers, both by reviewing data on popular individual sellers and products and by creating tiny product categories that allow your company to categorically access detailed seller information in a supposedly aggregate category. Uh, Do you deny that report? Bezos, also the owner of the Washington Post, seemed to question the journal's report on his company because of the use of anonymous sources. The Ohio Republican said such moves by, um, in fact, I'm Looking at the wrong thing. Anyway, um, I'm familiar with the Wall Street Journal report. He said uh, you're talking about we continue to look into that very carefully. We're not yet satisfied that we've gotten to the bottom of it. We're going to keep looking at it. I'm not as easy as you would think because some of the – or rather, it's not as easy as you think because some of the sources in the article are anonymous, but we continue to look into it. Jayapal replied – I take that as you're not denying that you're looking into it. Another um, interesting exchange came with Representative James Sensenbrenner. It had to do with whether or not Facebook would take down risky COVID 19. Uh, posts. A ranking member of the committee uh, pressed Zuckerberg on Facebook's threshold for taking down content. He cited Twitter suspension of Donald Trump Jr. for posting about drugs to treat COVID-19. Exactly what are your standards in, quote, filtering out political speech that maybe some people out there don't agree with, Sensenbrenner asked. Well, Zuckerberg said the goal is to offer a platform for all ideas. And he added, and I'm quoting, frankly, I think we've distinguished ourselves as one of the companies that defends free expression the most. We do have community standards around things that you can and cannot say, I think, Uh, You would likely agree with most of them. They banned categories of harm, such as promoting terrorist propaganda, child exploitation, incitement of violence, some more legalistic things like intellectual property violations. They also banned things like hate speech that could lead to dehumanizing people and encouraging violence down the road. Zuckerberg said he could uh, speak to policies at Facebook, but noted that Twitter and not Facebook had penalized the younger Trump, stating there is a proven cure for COVID when there is, in fact, none might encourage Someone to go take something that could have an adverse effect, Zuckerberg said. So we do take that uh, down. We do uh, not prohibit discussion around trials of drugs or people saying that they think these uh, things might work. Well, Brenner pushed back, stating that such opinions should be open for debate or fact-checkers to probe. Well, in general, I agree with you, Zuckerberg said, and then he went on to say we do not want to become arbiters of truth. Finally, Apple CEO OK with Huawei, Cook CEO of um Apple stressed that his company is not a monopoly. He later brought up Huawei Technologies uh, Company, Inc., among other competing companies, as um, having an approach that he is okay with. Huawei, of course, is a Chinese government-run company that's been accused of um, unfair competitive practices he said, "If you want to put uh, put it simply, products like iPhone just work." Cook said, "When customers consistently give iPhone a 99% satisfaction rating, that's the message they're sending about the user experience." He then listed competitors, including Huawei. That's uh, again an overview of the hearing that took place yesterday. What it accomplished? Not altogether sure. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned, the who's who of big tech took a turnover, or rather, before Congress uh, yesterday, and not a moment too soon, considering the mess they're making of free speech. Tony Perkins wrote on the subject, pointed out that the men behind Apple, Facebook, Google, and Amazon have a lot of questions to answer about censorship if House leaders will let Republicans ask. Well, they weren't asked much, but the first one, considering what happened this week with the frontline doctors conference ought to be, why are you letting your political agenda get in the way of the coronavirus facts? Well, again, Tony Perkins says by the time Facebook had taken it down, their news conference on covid Uh, had beaten out some of the biggest names on the platform. With 17 million views, even the group America's Frontline Doctors was surprised at how desperate people were for information. They'd come to D.C. with one goal, to address some of the rumors about the pandemic and share their views on the best ways to fight it. As men and women who'd spent the last several months treating patients with COVID, their opinion was valuable to everyone, it turns out, except for Facebook, Twitter, and eventually all of them. Mark Zuckerberg's platform pulled the video, insisting it was full of false Information about cures and treatments for COVID 19. Twitter and YouTube soon followed suit. Dr. Taryn Clark, one of the participants who joined um, Washington Watch yesterday, was shocked, first because the event got so much attention and then because it was considered controversial. Their intention, she insisted, was only to help answer people's questions. The numbers are starting to look like they don't add up. People are living in fear. There have been a lot of deaths, but um, recently, more of the people who have tested positive with this have not had symptoms, have been younger, healthier, and removed more quickly, and rather recovered more quickly. So I think there is really a, curious, a curiosity rather, in our society as well. It's not looking like in my community, like it's supposed to look and it, um, it uh, looks on the news. So what's the story here? So they were attempting apparently in this video to address that. Their main goal, Tony Perkins goes on to say, Taryn said, uh, was to share what they'd seen up close. We had, as you uh, said, millions and millions of viewers and then we were equally surprised when we woke up and all of it had been taken down. Even the website that hosted their conference was gone along with all the links to the studies that had been done on hydroxychloroquine that she said um, uh, shocked everyone. It's where so many people seem intent on shutting down debate that makes us frustrated. There are papers, she explains, from our own government talking about the drug's effectiveness and treating other COVIDs. Uh, I don't know how it's controversial that we're looking at uh, NIH papers from the time Uh, Anthony Fauci was at the NIH. The facts, Taryn argued, are being ignored, and she knows it because she treated actual patients and watched their recovery. I was referring people to the CDC's own website, she said, which has a two-page fact sheet on the drug, and even that is a cause for censorship. Uh, Taryn argued the medical community has studied this drug for years. It's been around a very long time, so it's not a mystery. It's not unsafe. It's effective immediately. I just don't know how it could be seen that we're advocating something dangerous. Anyway, these 20 physicians that were part of this video from across multiple specialties aren't doing this for media attention, she went on to say. We don't have a dog in the fight. We have nothing to gain financially. We're motivated because we want to help people and we want to cut through what some of the medical boards are doing with this medication. It's so out of control, she explained, that pharmacists refusing to fill prescriptions. I've never seen, uh, uh, never been questioned about a prescription, she said. I could probably." Probably write a prescription for a crazy amount of opioids and get less pushback than I got on this for 20 tablets of this medication. It is unprecedented. Well, what's driving this unusual behavior in the medical community? Well, the doctor uh, doesn't know. What she does know is that these social media platforms are just as committed to covering up the facts as anyone, and it's time to call them out. So again, all of this in the context of that hearing just yesterday. Well, in other uh, other news. There is a tale of two relief bills. These days, the two parties couldn't be more different. And their latest attempts at um, virus relief certainly proves it. House leaders who ditched the spirit of goodwill that got America through the CARES Act have already made clear that they're not serious about anything but the elections. Their proposal, which was basically a summary of every radical idea – Uh, that they've ever had passed in may now senate minority leader rather majority leader mitch mcconnell says it's time to get down to business and consider something reasonable Whether um, there's going to be cooperation is another story. The Senate will not waste time with pointless partisanship, McConnell warned when he unveiled his chamber's plan. There is reason why even Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer themselves have publicly downplayed the multi-trillion dollar socialist manifesto they published some weeks back and have suggested the real serious discussion would begin when Republicans released their out. Excuse me, their outline. Well, unlike House Democrats, the Senate majority doesn't think taxpayer-funded abortion, cash for illegal immigrants, marijuana banking, um, state bailouts, rigged elections, and the redefinition redefinition of the family will do much about America's real needs at this time. So they've offered something else: the Heals Act. I hope this strong proposal will occasion a real response, McConnell told reporters with an eye on the other chamber, not partisan cheap shots, not the predictable, tired old rhetoric as though these were ordinary times and the nation could afford ordinary politics. Again, a tale of two bills dealing with the fallout from COVID-19 Well, Gross domestic product fell 9.5% from April through June, the Commerce Department said today, the largest quarterly drop in record, or rather recorded history. The economy contracted by an annual rate of 32.9%, slightly less than economists had predicted. The second largest drop in GDP was in 1921. Meanwhile, another 1.43 million Americans filed initial unemployment claims last week. The 19th week, the total has surpassed 1 million new claims. Well, the staggering numbers come as Cases of the coronavirus increase in some southern and western states that reopened their economy several weeks ago, causing governors in Texas, Florida and California to implement some social distancing restrictions once again. And Congress faces increasing pressure to approve another coronavirus relief package as out-of-work Americans face the expiration this month of the extra $600 a week in unemployment benefits lawmakers approved in March as the pandemic began spreading rapidly across the country. Well, NASA's Mars 2020 Perseverance rover launched to the red planet today. The rover launched from Florida atop the United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket. Um, NASA's uh, uh, rover launched into space atop the... uh, Uh, Rocket at 7.50 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time from Launch Complex 41 at Cape Canaveral. The rover lifts off uh, right at the start of the mission's launch window, which had been planned for when Earth and Mars are in perfect alignment. Lifted by 2 million pounds of thrust, it took the rocket about five seconds to clear the launch tower at Cape Canaveral. We're in touch with the spacecraft. Everything is normal, according to Dr. Thomas Zurbuchen, who's NASA's associate administrator for the science mission. The journey to Mars will take seven months, The rover is scheduled to land on Mars um, in a particular crater in February of 2021. The mission's duration on the red planet's surface is at least one Martian year or about 687 days. A Mars helicopter is also being transported with the rover dubbed Ingenuity. The helicopter will be the first aircraft to attempt powered flight on another planet. During its time on Mars, the Perseverance rover will search for evidence of ancient life on the red planet. Mars is looming large for a number of other countries. China, for example, recently launched its own uh, Tianwen-1 missile to land a rover on Mars. The United Arab Emirates also recently launched an Amal orbiter to the Red Planet. Amal, which is an Arabic word for hope, will not land on Mars, but is the um, Arab world's first interplanetary mission. Meanwhile, in a rather puzzling act, President Donald Trump lagging in the polls and grappling with an economic collapse and public health crisis on Thursday floated the startling idea of delaying the November 3rd presidential election. The notion drew immediate pushback from Democrat and Republicans alike in a nation that has held itself up as a beacon to the world for its history of peaceful transfer of power. Trump suggested the delay as he pushed unsubstantiated allegations that increased mail-in voting due to the coronavirus pandemic would result in fraud. But shifting election day is virtually impossible. And the very idea represented another bracing attempt, um, uh, according to his critics, to undermine confidence in the American political system. Well, I'm going to leave that there for now. We're going to take a look at voter fraud and mail-in balloting. And why it isn't unsubstantiated, but is in fact, there are in fact real reasons for concerns. We'll get into that on another occasion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the next hour, we'll talk with Amanda Barrett, My Dearest Dietrich, a novel on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his lost love. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a videographer knifed near the scene of a protest outside Portland's federal courthouse said Wednesday he was nearly killed over his right wing political views and his activism. I was stabbed for being a conservative journalist. That's a quote from Andrew Duncombe, 25, who films demonstrations and other political events under the moniker Black Rebel. Duncombe, who is black and a vocal supporter of President Donald Trump, told the Oregonian that he had traveled last Friday to Portland from his home in North, northern California to document the nightly unrest outside the O. Hatfield United States Courthouse and um, County Justice Center. He had a specific agenda in mind. He said, my main goal was to show that it wasn't just the feds creating the problems. Well, thousands of people have taken to the streets in Portland to decry police brutality and systematic racism since the end of Uh, The death rather of George Floyd uh, in Minneapolis by police in late May. Uh, Often the downtown protests now in their 62nd consecutive day have devolved late at night at some protesters lob fireworks bottles and cans at federal courthouse and federal officials. Um, they're shining lasers in their eyes and trying to dismantle a reinforced fence installed outside the courthouse. Well, federal tactical officers, many dressed in camouflage fatigues, have responded with aggressive force, firing tear gas and impact mu- munitions in response uh, to the assault on the facility. Well, Mr. Duncombe, who has uh, more than 20,000 followers on Twitter and Facebook, said that people familiar with his work had alerted activists to his presence at the protest shortly after he arrived. Originally from Oklahoma. His notoriety notoriety online has stemmed in part from his fervent defense of the Confederate flag and monuments, including his participation in a 2017 white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, that culminated with a neo-Nazi killing a counter-protester with his car. Well, the trouble in downtown Portland started just before 2.30 a.m. on Saturday when a group began tailing him and a few of uh, of his friends for several blocks, according to Duncombe and court records. He said he eventually handed his video camera to a friend and decided to confront one of the men from the group. Someone's stalking us, the friend can be heard saying in the video as Duncombe approaches the man who wore a respirator, goggles and a pair of brown Carhartt overalls near Southwest Salmon. Uh, he confronted him. The man then stabs him without saying a word. The video shows. Well, Duncombe said the blade entered his back between his uh, rib cage and hip, just inches from his spinal cord. The adrenaline just soared through him. I had a can of um, bear mace and a knife in me, too, but I didn't want to endanger innocent bystanders. He was taken to OHSU. He is expected to recover. So this is one of the uh, events that took place last night in Portland. Meanwhile, we learned that Portland residents will vote this fall whether to revamp the city police oversight system in a way that proponents say will lead to more accountability and transparency in investigations of officer misconduct. The Portland City Council voted unanimously on Wednesday to refer the proposal to the November 3rd ballot, despite objections from City Auditor Mary hull uh, Caballero, who oversees the existing Independent Police Review and the Portland Police Association, which represents the majority of the city's officers. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, whose office crafted the proposal, tried to reassure Portland police officers that those committing, uh, rather committed to serving the community should not fear the new plan. This new measure, she says, will make them better and will make new officers who join them better. This is about being accountable to each of us, the officers, and the community. Hardesty said community members. Have called for a truly empowered, independent accountability system before and after the Independent Police Review was created in 2001. Well, the other three members of the council, and by the way, this is the same um, uh, council member who had suggested that the, the the violence that was taking place early morning in the Portland area was uh, instigated and, in fact, propagated by members of the federal law enforcement. She later had to take that back as it was a falsehood. The other three members of the council acknowledged there is a risk in sending the proposal to voters, but they said they trust Hardesty and that the demand for police accountability is at the core of nightly protests in Portland. Overhauling the city's law enforcement oversight system has been a priority for city officials. She said the ballot proposal amounts to a framework for the new system and that the city would have 18 months if it passes to iron out the details. Again, if uh, she has proposed it, I'm already a bit skeptical ab- about what's in it, but I haven't yet seen it, so I'll reserve judgment until I have. Meanwhile, hundreds of Seattle residents spoke up about proposals to defund the police there during a city council uh, budget meeting on Wednesday, according to reports. The council is considering a plan that could slash the bud- budget of the city's police department by 50%, resulting in layoffs for hundreds of officers, all as Seattle deals with a coronavirus outbreak and frequent riots and other unrest since the 25th of May. And while the defund police effort was initially popular in the city, opponents of the plan have been growing more vocal. Uh, Seattle's um, local news is reporting defunding the police is a radical experiment that will hurt the vulnerable one member of the public calling in from uh, to the phone in meeting told the council. Uh, in addition, the Seattle Police Officer Guild, the union representing police, said it had collected more than 20,000 signatures on the Stop Defunding petition that station reported. But proponents of the Defund Police Plan say it would be part of an effort to repair race relations in the city following years of excessive force against minorities and others. Uh, claiming to be mistreated. Nothing less than defunding will begin to heal the violence committed by police against Seattle's black, brown, and indigenous peoples. So it's an all or nothing situation there. Um, An estimated 300 people who signed up to address the council in the process uh, that took uh, three hours uh, was recorded as uh, commenting. Earlier on Wednesday, Seattle police union leader, Michael Salon, he said that uh, he lashed out against the mayor who had uh, claimed on CNN on Monday that President Trump was using federal agents in Seattle and other cities as a political tool in what she describes as a dry run for martial law. Salon said, uh, countered rather, clearly what the dry run for Seattle was, chop, experience where multiple people were shot and killed. Currently, a veto-proof majority on the city council supports the cut to the police department, despite uh, polls showing that public support is split uh, in the city of Seattle. Well, the Oregon Health Authority on Wednesday announced 304 new coronavirus cases in the state of Oregon, eight more fatalities, pushing the state's mounting death toll to record levels over the past few weeks. At least 66 Oregonians have died since the 12th of July, a sum that has already surpassed Oregon's deadliest three-week uh, stretch from late March to April. The Oregon, uh, Oregonian Oregon uh, Life uh, is tracking the coronavirus deaths by week using the data uh, of death uh, instead of the date of the death uh, reported by the health authority. More than half of the recent deaths have been concentrated among residents from just three counties Multnomah, Marion, and um, Umatilla counties. The average age of those residents across all of Oregon who have died has been 77. Meanwhile, Governor Kate Brown today announced that two counties, Lincoln and Union, have succeeded in reducing the spread of COVID-19 sufficiently enough to be removed from the county watch list. Meanwhile, three counties, Hood, Marion, and Multnomah, have been added to the watch list. This brings the total number of counties on that list to 10. The county watch list allows the state to prioritize resources and assistance to counties that are seeing the broadest spread of COVID-19. When a county is placed on the watch list, the Oregon Health Authority increases monitoring and communication and deploys additional technical assistance and resources such as epidemiological support, case investigation, and contact tracing help. The governor said in her conference, I want to applaud county officials and community members in Lincoln and Union counties for their diligent work in bringing the spread of COVID-19 under control in these areas. Your leadership shows that we can reduce the spread of this disease if we work together. The governor once again said Lincoln and Union counties were successful in reducing community spread and coming off the watch list. Thanks in part to the diligent work of local public health staff as well as community members. Uh, Counties are placed on the watch list of when uh, COVID-19 is spreading quickly and public health officials cannot trace that spread to specific sources, creating a potentially dangerous dynamic. Specific markers of this rapid community spread include uh, when there is a sporadic case uh, rate of 50 or more per 100,000 people in the last two weeks and the county has uh, had more than five sporadic cases in the last um, uh, several weeks as well counties remain on the watch list for a minimum of three weeks and until their sporadic case rates drop below these thresholds you're listening to the Georgine rice show we've got news and traffic coming up in just a moment and then in the second hour of the program we're going to hear amanda barrett author of my dearest dietrich a novel of dietrich bonhoeffer's lost love you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening
0: to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in our next couple of segments, we'll talk with Amanda Barrett. She's the author of My Dearest Dietrich. It's a novel. We'll talk with her about that next. Well, British scientists have determined that there are six different types of COVID-19 distinguished by specific clusters of symptoms which could help in the treatment of the deadly contagion. Well, the study conducted by King's College London analyzed data from about 1,600 UK and US coronavirus patients who regularly logged their symptoms into a tracking app in March and April. Well, the findings reveal that six distinct groupings of symptoms emerged uh, by the fifth day of the virus progression which the researchers say could help doctors better treat individual patients by allowing them to pre, uh, predict what level of hospital care they need. Our study, according to the lead researcher Dr. Carol Sudre from King's College, our study illustrates the importance of monitoring symptoms over time to make our predictions about individual risk and outcomes more sophisticated and accurate. This approach is helping us to understand the unfolding story of this disease in each patient, patient rather so they can get Uh, their best care. All of the people who logged their symptoms experienced loss of smell and headaches, but then had a varying combination of lesser known side effects as the illness set in, including confusion, abdominal pain, and shortness of breath. Well, the six clusters were uh, broken down uh, by order of severity. And this is uh, the list. Flu-like symptoms uh, with no fever, headache, loss of smell, muscle pains, cough, sore throat, chest pain, no fever. That's one cluster. Flu-like with fever, as opposed to the first, with no fever, headache, loss of smell, cough, sore throat, hoarseness, fever, uh, loss of appetite. Then a third, gastrointestinal, headache, loss of smell, loss of appetite, diarrhea, sore throat, chest pain, no cough. So You see there's some crossover in all of these. The fourth is severe level 1 fatigue, headache, loss of smell, cough, fever, hoarseness, chest pain, and fatigue. The next is severe level 2 confusion, headache, loss of smell, appetite, cough, fever, hoarseness, sore throat, chest pain, fatigue, confusion, and muscle pain. And finally, severe level three, abdominal and respiratory uh, ailments, headache, loss of smell, loss of appetite, cough, fever, hoarseness, sore throat, chest pain, fatigue, confusion, muscle pain, shortness of breath, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Well, the first three clusters that I mentioned were more common in younger and healthier patients, while the last three, more severe symptoms were more likely in older patients or those with pre existing conditions like diabetes, lung cancer, or obesity. Only 1.5% of people in the first um, cluster uh, of people uh, and the second, as well as the third, um, required breathing support like extra oxygen, ventilators, according to research. But the likelihood of needing breathing support rose in the latter three clusters uh, with 8.6, 9.9, and 19.8% respectively so they're refining their understanding of covid-19 and how it impacts partic- particular individuals and keeping track of the symptoms has helped them to um, to be more precise not only in understanding how it impacts individuals but how to treat those individuals Um, as well. Well, the Food and Drug Administration on Wednesday opened the door to COVID-19 testing that could be fast, cheap, and handled entirely at home if companies don't find the rules too burdensome. A routine screening of people who don't know they have COVID-19 could transform the fight against the disease. Now, These types of tests will be a game changer, they say, in our fight against the virus and will be crucial as the nation looks toward reopening that's a quote from the fda commissioner dr stephen Hahn, in a statement announcing how the agency will approve at-home tests Well, so far, the FDA hasn't allowed anyone to sell tests for at-home use. And there's always, you know, is it going to be administered correctly and understood rightly? Well, lab tests to detect the coronavirus are accurate, but they're often restricted to people who have COVID-19 symptoms. It often takes days to get results, by which point the person may have already infected others. In fact, I had a procedure a couple of weeks ago. I had to have a week prior Uh, to being admitted, I had to have the COVID-19, what I refer to as the lobotomy. It was the the swab that was stuck so far up my nose, I was certain I could feel it scratching the inside of my skull. And I never did get a definitive answer, no, you don't have it, yes, you do. I was just permitted to go forward with the procedure, so I assume I did not. With COVID-19, people are most contagious in the few days before they develop symptoms and as symptoms first develop. So screening at home may once or twice um, a week would allow people to test themselves before going to work or school, getting on an airplane, attending an event, or visiting an elderly relative. Letting people know um, they are infectious in real time would enable them to self-quarantine, and it would allow others to go about day-to-day life without risk in- of infecting others. So we're keeping an eye on how this develops, and the FDA, again, is um, uh, has opened the door to rapid at-home testing for COVID-19. I don't know what that timeline looks like, but we're continuing to follow the story. Meanwhile, Dr. Anthony Fauci suggested yesterday that Americans should consider wearing goggles or a face shield in order to prevent spreading or catching COVID-19. Uh, if you have goggles or an eye shield, you should use it, the nation's top infectious disease expert told ABC News chief medical correspondent Dr. Jennifer Ashton during an Instagram live conversation on ABC News. When asked if we're going to get to a point where eye protection is recommended, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases responded, it might if you really want perfect protection of the mucosal surfaces. Uh, You have mucosa in the nose, mucosa in the mouth, but you also have mucosa in the eyes, he continued. Theoretically, you should protect all of the mucosal surfaces. So if you have goggles or an eye shield, you should use it. He noted that goggles and eye or face shields are not universally recommended at this time. But if you really want to be complete, you should probably use it if you can. Well, the novel coronavirus pandemic has killed more than 662,000 people worldwide so far and more than 16.8 million people across the world have been diagnosed with COVID 19, the disease caused by the new respiratory virus, according to data from the Centers for System Science and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University. Currently, the United States is um, the worst affected country with more than 4.3 million diagnosed cases and over 150,000 deaths. It's also the country that is best uh, situated, best prepared to address the disease. Well, Fauci called out four states by name that are struggling to get the virus in check. He and Dr. Deborah Burks, the White House's coronavirus task force coordinator, addressed these states in a call with governors on Tuesday. Ohio, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Indiana are among those that are starting to show the very subtle increase in percent posit- uh, positives among the uh, totals tested, which is a surefire hint that you may be getting into the same sort of trouble with, uh, with those states that the southern states got into trouble with. So we're watching that really carefully, he went on to say. Well, he also uh, when people should get testing for COVID-19, and that's in the absence of a home test that one can take periodically, uh, if they believe they've been exposed to the virus since there is no official guideline from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention or the National Institutes of Health on when to get tested. Now, the question he uh, went on to uh, answer, the question came up at the task force meeting yesterday, and we asked the same uh, thing, uh, uh, but there's just really no recommendation Fauci's went on to say, I would think that five days is good. I might even go a day or so earlier uh, because of the incubation period uh, of when you get the symptoms is about five days. The window Fauci recommended is no earlier than three days, no later than five or six. But then again, it requires that you have access to the test if you uh, are not um, believed to or if you don't know that you have, uh, have the virus. Well, there's a lot of information swirling around. I thought it was interesting. Uh, In Providence, Rhode Island, the Associated Press reported that as the world races to find a vaccine and a treatment for COVID, there's seemingly no antidote in sight for the burgeoning outbreak of coronavirus conspiracy theories, hoaxes, anti-mask myths, mask myths, goggle suggestions, and sham cures. The phenomenon unfolding largely on social media escalated this week by um, uh, the Hearings on social media and what can and cannot be uh, considered by Americans. Um, experts worry the torrent of information is dangerously undermining efforts to slow the virus, whose death toll in the United States hit 150,000 yesterday, by far the highest in the world, according to the tally kept by Johns Hopkins University. Um, Hard-hit uh, Florida reported 216 deaths, breaking the single-day record if it uh, uh, it set earlier in the day, and South Carolina's death toll past 1,500 this week, more than doubling over the past month. Trying to manage uh, information that's being made available, knowing what to believe, what not to believe, uh, who to follow, who to listen to, what we should have access to and what we shouldn't is uh, creating a significant um, storm for people trying to do the right thing, trying to understand what's happening, and it will only continue into the future what to believe, what to do, what not to do. There are some things I think we can largely agree upon, but then there are questions about how certain things are being reported that are somewhat misleading. So that confusion uh, really is a problem for many who are trying to do the right thing, trying to understand this pandemic in the midst of um, conflicting reports. We'll try to provide for you what um, what we're learning. But again, doctors and professionals, I suppose at this point, are the best uh, best to listen to as they're attempting to try to understand this pandemic and COVID 19. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Amanda Barrett, my dearest Dietrich. That's the book. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably familiar to many of you. He was a devoted Christian, famous for his resistance to Adolf Hitler's Nazi government. Well, many people know Bonhoeffer's record, well, at least part of it, at least. What many do not know is that Bonhoeffer was actually part of a real-life love story. My next guest is the author of My Dearest Dietrich. She's a best-selling novelist. Amanda Barrett takes readers deeply into the life of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his true love, Maria von Wedermeyer. Well, through detailed historical research, including photos, she takes readers behind the scenes of this hero of the faith and the woman whose love changed his life. Yes, there's a love story connected with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's uh, it's just fascinating uh, to read about. Well, my guest, Amanda Barrett, is an ECPA bestselling author of several novels and novellas. She's a member of the American Christian Fiction Writers and a two-time FHL Reader's Choice Award finalist. She and her family live in northern Michigan. But she joins us today by phone to talk about her latest book, My Dearest Dietrich. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Well, this is an interesting book. Now, obviously, you have written works of fiction before. We don't often talk about uh, novels. I should say you've written novels before. We don't often talk about them here on this program. But this is such a fascinating story and sort of fills in a part of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life that few of us are familiar with. What inspired you to take on this subject and to write this book?
2: So, the first time I heard Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story, I was sitting around the dinner table, and my mom was sharing about the book she was currently reading. And that book was Eric Metaxas' Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness. And I was fascinated by the story of a pastor and theologian who stood boldly against the Nazi regime, a, Ger- a German pastor, no less. And a few months later, I came across a quote from a book called Love Letters from Cell 92 which is the book containing Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his fiancée, Maria von Wedemeyer's correspondence. And instantly a question begged to be asked, and that question was what kind of a woman would capture the heart of a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer? And I couldn't stop thinking as time went by about this remarkable love story and wondering why it had never been told and I've heard it said, if you can't find the book you want to read, write it. And after a lot of prayer, that's exactly what I decided to do.
1: Well, where do you begin in taking up a book like that? And obviously, you mentioned there is a book of the letters that he had written to her. But to learn more about her, where do you begin?
2: Well, the book Love Letters from Cell 92 was the foremost research about Maria because not a lot has been told or written about her. The very first biography about Dietrich Bonhoeffer was written by his friend Eberhard Detka, and it was over a 1,000 pages long, and Maria was mentioned on only four of them, which was astonishing to me because she played such a great role in Dietrich's um, final years. And so Love Letters from Psalm 92 is my foremost resource. I also was able to, I found a book that was written in German that was about Dietrich and Maria, and so I discovered that and one of my favorite resources about Maria was actually an interview that she did in 1974 for Malcolm Muggridge's documentary, A Third Testament. And though she was very reticent in speaking about Dietrich, she actually did sat down with Malcolm Muggridge and did this interview. And to me, that was incredible because we don't have mm-hmm. any video footage of Dietrich, but we have this interview with Maria, and she's sharing what it was like to discover that her fiancé, they didn't know where he'd been taken. And so she goes to Flossenburg Concentration Camp in the waning days of the war, and she's looking for him, and she's carrying a heavy suitcase. And at the concentration camp, they have no information for her, but it was at Flossenberg Concentration Camp where Dietrich could be executed by hanging in April, just a few months after she was there.
1: Well, it had to have been a traumatizing event to have fallen in love with someone who, for the bulk of their relationship, was in danger and then ultimately to lose him to the Nazi regime just a short period before the end of of the war. Well, let me invite you to introduce our audience to, uh, to her and to tell us more about her life before her relationship with Dietrich Bonhoeffer.
2: Well, I love talking about Maria because, like I said, she, for a very long time she was this hidden figure in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, whom a lot of people knew very little about. Um, Maria was the third of seven children, and she was from an upper-class p- family in Pomerania, Prussia. Her father was very anti-Nazi at a time when everyone was going right along with what Hitler was doing, and her, but her father actually even refused to hang a swastika on his property. And her uncle and cousin, Henning von Treskow and Fabian von Schlabendorf, were very key in the resistance and conspiracy. So she came from this family, this group of people who were all very devoted to God and were thinking things through versus going blindly along with the masses. And so when Dietrich met Maria in the summer of 1942 at the home of Maria's grandmother, Maria was 18 and Dietrich was 36. So there's right from the get-go there's this obstacle this age difference mm-hmm. but as Dietrich and Maria they spent an evening together at Maria's grandmother's house there was this connection between them a friendship between them and even this attraction that Dietrich had not felt for another woman um there was one woman in his life earlier but he really this was really almost the first time he was experiencing this attraction to this woman at such a unlikely time in his life for him to experience it and maria was so incredible she was very independent and free thinking and she wanted to study mathematics at a time when german women were supposed to marry and have large families for the furtherance of the reich and so i just i loved studying her and loved discovering who she was she loved those around her fiercely and was very close to her father and her brother, Max, both of whom were killed within months of each other just shortly after she met Dietrich.
1: Now, that was one of the obstacles, the age difference between the two, but certainly the timing of this relationship. They spent really very little time together. Most of their relationship was long distance or or through letters. And of course, there's uh, the war that's uh, that's breaking out there as well. And Germany is at the, the heart of all of that. Talk about some of the difficulties and why their relationship still happened despite those difficulties.
2: Oh, the difficulties Dietrich's two faced, wow, yes, in many ways their relationship should have been impossible until it wasn't. One of them was that after Maria's brother's death, Maria's mother found out that Maria's grandmother had been doing matchmaking between Dietrich and Maria, because Maria was spending time with her grandmother in Berlin and Maria's grandmother was very keen on the idea of getting her granddaughter married off to someone whom she looked up to as much as she looked up to Dietrich and But Maria's mother was discouraging them from pursuing a future with each other because she didn't want Maria to become involved with a man whose true activities were shrouded in such danger. And so after they became engaged in January of 1943, but Dietrich and Maria didn't see each other again until that June, until after Dietrich has been imprisoned in Tegel. But what was fascinating to me is on April 5th, the very day of Dietrich's arrest, this, this sense of unease comes over Maria, and she writes this letter to Dietrich in her diary, and she writes, Dear Dietrich, has something bad happened? I'm afraid it's something very bad. And she so Maria was sensing deeply that something had happened to Dietrich, and indeed it had it. On that very day was the day that he was arrested.
1: Hmm. Now, she was a uh, profoundly uh, deep in her own faith, and uh, being connected with someone who was standing firm against the Nazi regime because of his faith, um, how did that impact the, the, her life of faith, uh, the challenges of staying connected with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the culture around her, and knowing that he was in danger? And there was a possibility that that relationship would not uh, result in uh, them having the opportunity to come together as a, a couple that, that wanted to marry.
2: Well, both of them did deeply struggle, especially as Dietrich was in prison in Tegel and months went on and on, and he wasn't being released. At first, they thought he was going to be released rather quickly, but his trial kept getting dragged out, and so... They kept waiting and waiting. And Maria started to suffer physically. She started to suffer um, like almost like a nervous breakdown, is what she went through because she was, they really, they deeply wanted to share this future together. And Dietrich didn't want, he didn't set out to be a martyr. And in the end, that mm-hmm. was what it came down to, but that wasn't what he set out to do. He wanted to marry the woman he loved, he wanted to have a future with her. And one of the things that I include in the book is a poem that Dietrich wrote about this separation entitled The Past and Dietrich Bonhoeffer had wrote several poems in prison and this is one of them and I include portions of it in the novel. It's absolutely beautiful. It's this tribute to how much he loves her, how hard it is to be separated from her. He was a very reserved person, and it's one of the times when he lets all of those barriers fall and just shows the way he truly feels about her.
1: Hmm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon about a fascinating book. It's simply titled My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's love, uh, or rather lost love. She stays uh, true and faithful to the story itself, and I think for those of you who... Uh, believe uh, you know something about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. this is a glimpse into another aspect of his life that I think will reinforce your regard for him and certainly the woman that he loved you're listening to the georgine rice show We'll be back in just a few moments
0: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on ninety three point nine kpdq
1: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Amanda Barrett. She is the author of many novels. Her latest is a novel about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lost Love, titled My Dearest Dietrich. And you have the opportunity to learn more about uh, his love for this young woman who was uh, significantly younger than he, but also about her and what kind of remarkable woman would have captured his heart and the impact of events that were taking, uh, taking place around them during this time. Well, tell us about some of the other key characters of the book and how they played a part in Dietrich and Maria's story. You mentioned that uh, there was a bit of matchmaking going on early on, but who are some of the other characters?
2: research was Dietrich's um, brother-in-law Hans von Danani because Hans is the one who got Dietrich a pastor involved in the conspiracy. Hans worked for the AVER which was German military intelligence and he very early on the Bonhoeffer family was in the know about what was going on the horrors that were taking place because Hans was asked to compile a dossier of Nazi crimes where he detailed the atrocities that were going on in Poland corruption that was going on in the high Nazi officials and so after Dietrich returned from a trip to America where he'd intended to be there during the war, but he felt God leading him to go back to Germany to stand with the German people at their time of suffering. And so when he arrived back in Germany, his brother-in-law um, helped him to get a place in the ad there so he wouldn't have to fight in the Wehrmacht at the time because he didn't feel that he could participate in Hitler's war of aggression. But he became involved in the conspiracy, and he... Was supposed to be what he did was he went to neutral countries like Switzerland and Sweden supposedly to further the cause of the Reich, but in reality he was having secret meetings with people who were loyal to the Allies, trying to get them to pass on word to the Prime Minister to that there was this conspiracy in Germany and they desperately needed British support.
1: You um, were able to connect with uh, someone that had been connected to Maria. First of all, how did you find him, referring to Bishop Kenneth Kenner, and what was that like for you, having studied and researched about her life, uh, to meet someone who knew her personally and could give you some insight?
2: A mutual friend connected us, and it was an absolute honor because I never anticipated at the start of writing this book that I would be able to sit down with someone who actually knew Maria. I actually had a phone conversation with him, and that was a great honor. He was um, her pastor in the 1960s when she lived in a town called Easton, Connecticut, and he shared with me his memories of her. He didn't know her incredibly well, but he one time she did sit down and talk to him a little bit about Dietrich, and she shared that how she believed if Dietrich were living in the 1960s, how he would be actively participating in the um, what was going on with the African-American people. He'd be standing up for them if he were living in America at the time, is what she was saying, what mm-hmm. she told him. And so to me, that was just incredible to hear her her memories of Dietrich as well as much as Bishop Kinner told me.
1: Mm. Well, that had to have been uh, very interesting to meet with someone who had known her personally. Well, in the notes at the end of My Dearest Dietrich, you say that Maria never talked much about Dietrich. Why do you think that was? Was it simply heartbreak? Were these personal Reflections that she wanted to keep to herself or was this just more culturally um, appropriate at the time for a young woman not to speak extensively even about her famous uh, fiancé?
2: Well, I believe that that goes back to that the fact that I believe we all can relate to that when something is closest to us, when something is deepest in our heart, we don't often like to bring it out into the surface and plaster it all over for everyone to see. And that was especially true of people following World War II. Maria moved to America after the war, and so she was very much focused on starting a new life there and moving on. and so she cherished Dietrich in her heart. They never had a picture taken together. They never had, she never had a, a lot of tangible um, links to him. She did have the letters, but that was about it. And so what she had of him, those memories, those letters, she cherished and she kept um, close to herself.
1: Through uh, my dearest Dietrich, those who may not be familiar with him will become better acquainted with, uh, with him and his important work, was there anything about him that you learned as in the process of writing this book about his relationship to the love of his life that you hadn't known before, or that might be surprising to us?
2: Well, I love discovering Dietrich, and I love discovering him not only as an author, a pastor, a theologian, and a man of resistance, and those are the ways that we know him very well, but as this very human, even flawed man, because... I think it's tempting to consign heroes of faith to a pedestal, but I think that and I think that we all could agree that that makes them distant and unrelatable. And so the Dietrich that I came to know, who I discovered that though he lived out his faith and lived out costly discipleship, he was also a very human man who struggled with raw emotions of fear, who fell in love at the most unlikely time in his life, and who who even fought that very falling in love. And so that was the Dietrich Bonhoeffer who became most real to me throughout the research and the writing process, not the whole person, not just this cardboard cutout labeled brilliant theologian and martyr.
1: What do you think uh, those of us who may be somewhat familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even his love life um, or not, what we might glean from their story that is relevant to us today, not just their relationship to one another, but their relationship to the culture and the decision that each of them made to stand firm in their faith against what was a very popular movement among their peers?
2: Oh, there are so many things. Bonhoeffer, he wrote, there are some very poignant things that he wrote, and one of them that I love is he wrote that only those who cry out for the Jews have the right to sing Gregorian chants. And when I read that, I pondered that for a while, and I thought, well, what if we took that seriously today? What if we said only those who speak out for the persecuted, only those who stand out for the suffering have the right to sit in church pews and sing hymns? And I just, to me, that struck me and convicted me mm-hmm. in my own walk you know, am I living daily discipleship out? Am I living in costly grace? He wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, the concept of cheap grace and costly grace. And costly grace is living like the cross matters. Costly grace is living that Jesus sacrificed all for me. I deserve, to sac- I must sacrifice my life for him. That's the only faith to live. And that is the faith that Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived out daily. And it's the faith that I believe we all as Christians should be seeking toward. And he is a wonderful role model for that. Not that he was perfect, but that he did serve God in a very difficult Mm -hmm. time in history.
1: What impact did the relationship that Maria had with Dietrich Bonhoeffer have on her after his death? Did she ever marry? Was she able to establish a a relationship with someone else and and have a family? How did this um, early season in her life impact her latter years?
2: Well, she didn't Dietrich's death until the summer of 1945, and she did. She moved to America a couple of years after the war, and she studied at Bryn Mawr University and gained a master's degree in mathematics. And she did marry twice, but sadly, their, both of her marriages ended in divorce. Although she, with her first husband, she had two sons, Paul and Christopher, whom she loved deeply. And after her second divorce, she moved to Boston, where she rose in the ranks. Honeywell Computers, where she worked, and she became the head of her department in software engineering, which to me was astonishing for a woman at that time. I mean, that obviously just speaks to her strength, her intelligence, just the amazing person that she was. And Mm -hmm. she was diagnosed with cancer in 1977, and four months later, she passed away at the age of 53, leaving her sister, Ruth Alice, the um, the task of publishing her correspondence with Dietrich.
1: Mm. How did writing this particular novel, being a novelist and this not being your first work, how did this impact you personally, Um, reading the intimate uh, communication between these two um, very important people and then having the charge to write about them?
2: Well, it was a very daunting task because we're dealing with Dietrich Bonhoeffer here, but in the end, story is story, and faith is faith. whether we're talking about faith during World War II or faith today, and so... I was deeply it was very hard to write the final scenes of the book because I became I spent years working and researching on this project and to get to those final scenes knowing that Dietrich and Maria were never going to marry never going to have the future that mm. they so desperately longed to have it was it was very heartbreaking for me but in a way I believe that their story really it speaks to the fact of what it is to be a disciple of Christ D- Dietrich wrote that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And though I don't think he meant that literally, in the end that was what it came down to for him. And in the end, we as Christians need to be thinking, is that am I prepared to yeah. die for my faith if if that comes to it?
1: And because he was willing to, we're still talking about him today. And because she was willing to love someone who had that kind of commitment, we still remember her as well. I'm so grateful that you wrote the book because you have a deep um, regard for their faith and you write faithfully about their relationship and challenge all of us who read the book, My Dearest Dietrich, to consider our faith more seriously as well. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Appreciate it. Again, the book is titled My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's lost love by Amanda Barrett. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. 74 year old Herman Kane, former businessman and Republican presidential candidate, has passed away after being hospitalized for nearly a month. He also had COVID-19, whether he died from that or complications related to the return of cancer is not altogether clear. But Herman Cain was the former Republican presidential candidate, an affable business magnate. He died Thursday after being hospitalized. He first went to an Atlanta hospital for treatment on the 1st of July, according to his staff. His death was announced on Herman Cain's website and Facebook page, and it read, Herman Cain, our boss, our friend, like a father to so many of us, has passed away. The statement on his website said, uh, noting that there were hopeful indicators in recent days that he'd recover, but adding, and yet he, we also felt um, real concern about the fact that he never quite seemed to get to the point where the doctors could advance him to the recovery phase. Uh, Newsmax, which Kane recently joined, also posted an obituary confirming he died Thursday. Kane also was a Fox News contributor for years. Former Kane staffer Ellen Carmichael tweeted on Thursday morning, I'm very saddened to learn that the passing of my former boss, Herman Kane, I'm bracing for the cruelty online about how he deserved to get COVID and die because of his politics. We're living in a dark time, but they didn't know him as I did. Just days ago, Kane's staff said in several tweets he was undergoing oxygen treatment, but his organs and other systems were strong. Cain, rather, was the co-chairman of the Black Voices for Trump organization, attending the president's rally in Tulsa without a mask on the 20th of June. Kane was diagnosed in 2006 with stage four colon cancer that metastasized to his liver and was given a 30 percent chance of survival. He successfully underwent chemotherapy and had been in remission ever since. Kane, who successfully steered food chain Burger King and Godfather's Pizza to profitability, and served as chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, shot to prominence in 2012 when he launched a bid to be the Republican presidential nominee. While he had a strong following among Tea Party activists, his campaign was derailed when he was accused of uh, sexual harassment and misconduct during his time as CEO of the National Restaurant Association in the 1990s. He denied those claims but dropped out of the race. Kane first entered politics in 1996 when he was a senior advisor on Bob Dole's presidential campaign, Following his 2012 presidential bid, he launched THE The Voice, an advocacy group focused on tax reform, energy policy and national security, and has become a frequent commentator on news outlets. Again, 74-year-old Herman Kane, former businessman and Republican presidential candidate, has passed away after being hospitalized and he had COVID-19. Pastor John MacArthur in California's Grace Community Church announced that his church would continue to hold in-person services despite state-mandated restrictions banning in-person worship services. About two weeks after California indefinitely closed churches and other businesses in more than 30 of the state's 58 counties as part of its response to the coronavirus Author and theologian MacArthur has given a biblical basis for his decision. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands, he wrote in a statement to the congregation on Friday. Government officials have no right to interfere in ecclesiastical matters in a way that undermines or disregards the God given authority of pastors and elders, he wrote. Christ is Lord of all. He is the one true head of the church. He was quoting Ephesians and Colossians. He is also king of kings, sovereign over every earthly authority. Timothy, Revelations. Grace Community Church has always stood immovably on those biblical principles. As his people, we are subject to his will and commands as revealed in scriptures. Therefore, we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other regular corporate gatherings." Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands. Some will think such a firm statement is inexorably in conflict with the command to be subject to governing authorities laid out in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Scripture does mandate careful, conscientious obedience to all governing authorities, including kings, governors, employers, and their agents. In Peter's words, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Insofar as government authorities do not attempt to assert ecclesiastical authority or issue orders that forbid our obedience to God's law, their authority is to be obeyed whether we agree with their rulings or not. In other words, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 still bind the consciences of individual Christians. We are to obey our civil authorities as powers that God himself has ordained. He went on to write, and again I'm quoting from Pastor John MacArthur of California's Grace Community Church. However, while civil government is invested with divine authority to rule the state, neither of those texts uh, nor any other grants civil rulers jurisdiction over the church. God has established three institutions within human society, the family, the state, and the church. Each institution has a sphere of authority with jurisdictional limits that must be respected. A father's authority is limited to his own family. Church leaders' authority, which is delegated to them by Christ, is limited to church matters. And government is specifically tasked with the oversight and protection of civic peace and well-being within the boundaries of a nation or community. God has not granted civic rulers authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. The biblical framework limits the authority of each institution to its specific jurisdiction. The church does not have a right to meddle in the affairs of individual families and ignore parental authority. Parents do not have the authority to manage civil matters while circumventing government officials. And similarly, government officials have no right to interfere in ecclesiastical matters in any way that undermines or disregards the God-given authority of pastors. And then he concludes... When any one of the three institutions exceeds the bounds of its jurisdiction, it is it the duty of other institutions to curtail that overreach. Therefore, when any government official issues orders regulating worship, such as bans on singing, caps on attendance, or prohibitions against gatherings and services, he steps outside the legitimate bounds of his God-ordained authority as a civic official and arrogates to himself authority that God expressly grants only to the Lord Jesus Christ as sovereign over his kingdom, which is the church. His rule is mediated to local churches through those pastors and elders who teach his word. So on the 13th of July, the office of Governor Gavin uh, Newsom announced that churches, fitness centers, and businesses in several industries in 30 counties in California would be uh, ordered to shut down again unless they could operate outside or through Uh, Pickup services. I'm not sure what that means. As of uh, Saturday, the order now applies to some 33 counties, with two others on a government monitoring list. So um, Pastor MacArthur said the governor, the government rather, is specifically tasked with the oversight and protection of civic peace and well-being within the boundaries of a nation or community, and that um, Grace Community Church would resume services. Uh, As ordained under the leadership of pastors and elders there. And of course, um, this has created quite a stir. We're going to spend more time on this, but I did want to share with you what uh, John MacArthur has said officially in the state of California, which will uh, no doubt result in a major showdown. Uh, in the next few days. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. We'll take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. Have a great night.
0: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook.